0: This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of not even past and hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies... My guest in the studio today is Sharzad Ahmadi, who is a doctoral student in the Department of History here at the University of Texas at Austin, where she specializes in the history of modern Iran. Welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about um, the origins of sectarianism in, in Islam. Uh, this is one of three episodes, actually, that we're going to be doing on this topic, which, as a note to our listeners, uh, has been requested several times by listeners like yourself. So we do take those seriously. So, when it comes to the Sunni-Shia splits, um, a lot of introductory textbooks explain that the difference between the Sunni and the Shia were that the Sunni believed that when the Prophet Muhammad died—and, of course, we're talking about 7th century Arabia— that the leadership of the community should, it should be egalitarian, that it should pass to whoever was the most qualified individual in the community, and that the Shia believed that it should remain within the family of Muhammad, kind of like uh, a monarchy. Would you say that that is an accurate description of the origins?
1: Well, it's much more complicated than that. In fact, that's a, a huge oversimplification of the situation. Muhammad, after he gets injured, he falls very ill. And there was a huge question of, would a prophet die? Is this even possible? As we know from um, the holy text, prophets could live for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was sort of bizarre to imagine that the prophet of God would die at such a young age. Right. how old was he? Um, He was about 62, I believe. He was born in 570, and he died in 632. Okay. So when he did fall ill, and he did eventually die, um, the choice was between two of his relatives, um, Abu Bakr, who was his uh, father-in-law by marriage, and of course with Aisha, and Ali, who was his son-in-law, also cousin, but it wasn't necessarily just between a blood relative and a non-blood relative, these were both his relatives. And the contestation for the caliphate was also a really um, a new concept. I mean, they hadn't really prepared for this in the way that one would assume because they didn't anticipate his death.
0: So since we are talking about, you know, essentially two people who are within his family, um, who are the major members of his family at that point? You've mentioned Aisha, who was his wife, and we'll come back to her in a little bit because she's a very important figure, and Ali, his his cousin, his son-in-law, and adopted son. Who are the other major members of his family?
1: So the major members of his family, um, he had sort of a larger family, as you know. Uh, Muhammad married Khadija, who was his first wife, and he was monogamous with her for as long as she lived. And through her, he had six children, two sons, who died, and four daughters. The daughter that's most prominent in history is Fatima, uh, mainly because she marries Ali, who becomes so important for the Islamic community. And Ali and Fatima end up having several children, two of whom are boys, Hassan and Hossein. Um, this becomes really central for many people because Muhammad didn't have sons. Uh, the question wasn't, should it be his son or should it be somebody else? Many said he, God did not give him a son, specifically because they did not want the caliphate to be by blood. But he does have these two grandsons, who he loves very much. After Khadija dies, he has several wives— He does not have any subsequent children. He does have one through a Christian, but the son dies um, en route to him. And so he never does have any other children after his children with Khadija.
0: Okay, so all of his children are Khadija's children.
1: Yes. Okay. So bringing
0: us back to the scene on his deathbed, as you mentioned, uh, his death was unexpected. Was he able to make any preparations or pass the mandate on himself, or did they have to sort of make it up as they went along?
1: So this is, of course, a very complicated issue as well, because Shias will say that, in fact, he did want to pass on the torch to Ali. There are hadiths, um, which are essentially stories that we get from either the prophet or companions of the prophet, and they're passed down, and there's a lineage to these hadiths, so we know hypothetically where they came from. Um, and there are hadiths that say that Muhammad wanted, he requested Ali's presence at his deathbed, but was thwarted by Aisha and Hafsa, who were the children of subsequent caliphs, um, Omar and Abu Bakr, who we'll get to and Shias will say that he was prevented from passing the torch to Ali. But the truth is that this is sort of a complicated issue because Ali had been somewhat of a disappointment on the field of battle, and he didn't have much in the way of like a charismatic force of character. Many of the historians of the period will say that. Um, So when Muhammad dies... Omar, who's one of his closest companions, and he's known as the tough guy of this group of companions, really has an emotional collapse. And he rallies behind Abu Bakr. Ali is washing the body of the prophet, uh, preparing uh, his father-in-law for his burial, and Abu Bakr gets the tribal leaders together and gets himself elected as caliph. So it's not really as egalitarian as, as some historians say. Um, the Banu Hashim, um, is, which is the tribe that Muhammad and Ali belong to, are really furious, and they want someone from their own tribe to be um, leaders of the Islamic community. And Fatima, who is Ali's um, wife and the daughter of Muhammad, really rallies the Banu Hashim uh, against Abu Bakr and the, the first caliph. But she dies, and shortly thereafter, Ali aligns himself with Abu Bakr.
0: So this is, of course, the beginning of some tension between them. And Ali is, I'm assuming, younger than the other candidates. Does that also play an issue?
1: Of course. I mean, this this could very easily explain sort of the fact that he's so green behind the ears. He's not really eager to take over. There are hadiths that talk about how as soon as Fatima dies, he shows up at Abu Bakr's house saying, look, I'm sorry, I back off. I am I don't want this. It's fine. Um, And, you know, like I said before, he wasn't um, very experienced in the field of battle. And this was also a big issue.
0: Right. So, thus begins the caliphate of Abu Bakr. And it's 632. And as you mentioned, Abu Bakr is the father of, of Aisha, who has sort of gained a bit of notoriety in the West, because she, of course, was the woman who was married to Muhammad when she was nine years old, according to some sources. And there isn't a lot of attention really focused on what happens to her in later life. For example, when her father becomes the caliph, where where is she in all of this?
1: Well, she's an incredibly powerful woman. And it's really a pity that the focus and emphasis is so much on the fact that she was very young when she married. Um, She was also a general on the field of battle later on. She was the daughter of an incredibly powerful caliph. When she didn't like a caliph, which we'll see later on, she was very politically active and she would hold soldiers in her home as sanctuary. I mean, this was a woman who was, um, you know, very powerful and even for her time, very controversial.
0: So, as we mentioned, Abu Bakr is now the caliph. What happens now that Muhammad is is gone.
1: Well, as you can imagine, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula still hadn't been consolidated, and Muhammad dies early. And so for the two years of Abu Bakr's rule, which is 632 to 634, um, he really consolidates the growing empire and leaves the caliphate to Omar, uh, who we mentioned earlier. And he's the next caliph from 634 to 644.
0: As you mentioned, Omar was a very strong leader. I remember a story where Muhammad loved good jokes, Um, And had a bit of a sense of humor and would actually forbid people from laughing when Omar would come around because Omar (laughs) didn't have a sense of humor and thought laughing was an impious (laughs) act. So uh, that sort of ranks him on the scale. So what kind of a caliph was he?
1: As you could imagine, he was a very powerful, very strong uh, caliph. And like that story alludes to, um, he was also a very determined, focused caliph, you know, no, no time for laughter. I mean, he really um, made the empire grow in a serious way. He really was responsible for making the empire as big as it was in many ways. So he conquers, uh, Israel, what we now consider Israel. Um, he takes the empire through the Persian Empire and starts to, uh, make some real headway in the Middle East. Um, and he makes the Islamic community one that serious empires have to really contend with. So he made the Islamic community that was isolated in the, in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and made it a huge empire.
0: And his rule ultimately also comes to an end. Um, Is he killed in battle or?
1: He's not. He's actually killed by a Persian servant. um, And he lives for several days after he's been attacked, where he presides over the Election of the subsequent caliph, and again, uh, it's down to Ali, who's been passed over twice now. Right, and uh, Uthman, and Uthman is actually was also very close to the Prophet. Um, there are stories that you know when Uthman would walk into the room, Muhammad would stand up, or he would you know put something over his legs out of respect. You know, he was a um, a very beloved figure for Muhammad. Uh, it comes down to the vote, and Uthman gets to be the next caliph. And of course, Ali and the people who supported Ali are again really furious that now the third uh, caliph has been elected, and it's still not the son-in-law of the prophet.
0: Right, because now it's twelve years since yep. since the prophet's death, and you know Ali is no longer a young kid. Exactly. So Uthman's rule was more troublesome. Can you talk a little more about what happened? under him. And he was killed for 12 years, if I'm not mistaken. That's right.
1: That's right. And this is very famous. It split into six years. So the good first six years and the bad second six years. And some historians will demarcate this breaking moment as there was a, a ring that the prophet had given him. And the story goes that he lost the ring. And after that, his rule his caliphate sort of, you know, went down the toilet, as they say. So for the final six years, he really raises the ire of the Islamic community due to his nepotism. Uh, for example, one of his relatives who he had named governor leads a prayer while drunk in Kufa. And this is, of course, a problem for Muslims because, you know, uh, alcohol is forbidden. Uthman didn't reprimand him. And It wasn't an isolated incident. In fact, he gave one of his cousins a position of treasurer in Medina, and he was accused of hoarding money for their tribe. Um, It got so bad that Aisha became really politically active. And out of frustration with her, but also due to his own, um, you know, his own corruption, he tries to make the pensions of all the widows the same. And, you know, Aisha was known as the favorite wife, and her pension had always been higher. And she's furious with him. And in fact, she accepts Iraqi soldiers searching for sanctuary, and even uses the Prophet's belongings to rally people behind her, saying that she knows what's best for the Islamic community more than Uthman does.
0: Wow, that's a really kind of tense situation. So how widespread was the dissatisfaction with his rule?
1: Very widespread. And eventually it reaches North Africa with Egypt. And it's with, you know, a group of Egyptian soldiers that things really come to a head. Um, the final straw comes when it was man appoints his foster brother as governor in Egypt and soldiers come to Medina to protest his rule. Uthman concedes some of their demands, but on their return to Egypt, they intercept a letter that was ordering their death.
0: This was a letter that
1: Uthman had sent? That's correct. Um, And so, furious with Uthman, obviously, they return to Medina demanding his death. You know, they want a different caliph. They say he's just too corrupt. They don't want to deal with him anymore. So they go to the three remaining important companions of the prophet, Ali, Zubair, and Talha, and all of them refuse to align themselves with them. This doesn't matter to them. They end up killing Uthman very dramatically. And essentially afterwards, they go to Ali and they say, well, we want you to be our next caliph and we're ready to elect you. And this, of course, is hugely controversial because now he's been essentially elected caliph by the very people who executed the last caliph.
0: I can see that that might not sit well with some (laughs) some of the leaders of the community.
1: Um, exactly. In fact, Zubair and Talha are not happy about it. Aisha's furious about it. And this, um, you know, introduces the question of, is she a hypocrite? Because for so long, she'd been rallying men against with man. But as soon as the Egyptian soldiers appear, she actually went on pilgrimage. She said that, I don't want to be involved in this. And when she returns to find out that Ali had been the next caliph, she is really upset. And she says that it's his responsibility to reprimand the murderers. Of course, it's very hard to do that when those murderers. Are the ones that just made you caliph?
0: Wow, very tense situation. Was Ali accepted as caliph by the community?
1: Um, some people, yes, but a lot of people, no. And um, you know, Aisha especially was like Fatima, like Ali's late wife, was very active in in like I said, rallying people against Ali. And and some people blamed their history together. Aisha and Ali did not have the best relationship. But it was also, you know, genuinely people were very frustrated. How could the next caliph condone, essentially condone, the acts of killing uh, a, a previous caliph?
0: So from here, um, we will, in our next episode, uh, begin to talk about the actual schism between the, 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 the followers of Ali and those who were against him. But uh, I want to thank you for shedding some light on, uh, as you mentioned, a situation that's frequently oversimplified in the textbooks. This has been another episode of 15 Minute History, we'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's one fiveminutehistory.org and for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.